being a woman in a corporate world. From day one, people don't expect you to do anything, right? So everything that you do, you have to fail fast. You actually learn to fail fast on your own because all that you're doing is to try to prove to the whole world that I'm as good as my colleague next door. Maybe you must stop thinking and just feel and go with the flow. Do, you know? No, just do. And if you make mistakes, it's fine. You learn, right? Fail fast, move on. Yeah. Because then if you fail, you know what you've done wrong. But if you are holding on to that method that you've, you've been using for 10 years, you're not growing, you're yeah. dying. The world has changed. Yep. The world is not what we know to be. I mean, in 2019 and what we did then and what we're doing today is totally different. If I can leave Rockwell, Africa, not South Africa, as a $1 billion company, I'll be happy. Kanina Zaza believes that technology is an enabler of great progress. She's of the heart that at the core of any successful solution is passionate people. In our ever-evolving world, her approach is people-centric with an experience as a business leader in fields of electrical and industrial automation. She's an incredible leader and an amazing human being. I hope you enjoy. Um, Kanina, thank you very much for seeing us. I would like to welcome you to the show. Yanesh, thank you very much for coming. Really appreciate it. Um, I am genuinely interested in um, growing up being your own hero, right? Like we look up to people and then I can, I can imagine when you turn a certain age, you can look back and say, wow, this is what I wanted to become. So I'm asking this because I want to understand how does, it, how does it feel to be here in this stage in your life as an opening question. Interesting. Um, I don't think I look at it that way. For me, I look at it from my colleagues' perspective. So whenever I engage with the different colleagues, for me, it's more about what works, what have we done differently as a team, and what else can we do differently. And the fact that people can engage with me easy, that's actually what makes me happy. So yeah. that's the only time that I actually stop and say, hmm, is it really good? Is it really what I want to do? Am I loving it? So I, I love engaging with people. So the more I engage with people in my career and in my current uh, title, that makes my day. That's what makes me happy. That's and what keeps me going. And you said, you, what, what do you do exactly? What, what is your role? Sure, I'm the managing director, which means I need to make sure that the governance part works. Not only E and B, like other people seem to think, but everybody, everything else, making sure that everybody's safe here at work, making sure that this structure is still standing by the time we go home, that everybody's still in one piece, business is still going, and we make money. I know it's all about money, but money is more the third thing that I worry about. It's mostly about people, yeah. and then the rest in between. And money how, how does one dream of such a career like uh, i'm 23 and i'm thinking to myself you don't just wake up one day and think i'm going to be the ceo or the managing director of this like how, how has that journey been from school up until this point did you dream it did you wake up and were you were chasing it were you running for it how did how did it happen can you just give us insight on that so i grew up from a family where we driven by entrepreneurship that's what i grew up from that's what i know um, so I was never brought up like someone who has to come and work for a company forever. For me, it was all about you go work for a corporate to learn, get experience. Once you get experience, you go out there and you open your own thing, right? Mm. So when I was at school, for me, it was more like I want to be an engineer, but I actually wanted to be a chemical engineer. I didn't want to be an elect electrical engineer until I finished my metric. And then I was one of those that never applied on time. 
<laughs> you and me both. Yes. <laughs> because of that, I ended up going to a FET college because that was the only place I could go to. And when I got there, it was either you do HR, you did finance, or you did electrical or mechanical engineer. And so I was like, mechanical, what is that? No, electrical. So that's how I ended up studying electrical engineer. I, know, I knew nothing about it, even if I did maths and science. I loved it, but it was okay, it's fine. By the time I got to N4, so I did the whole thing from N1 all the way to N6, I was like, what is this about? Because for me, I need to go to university. But the interesting part was the companies that came to interview us, to share with us, like during the holidays, they'll like take you and say, come and see what you have to do and the difference between being an engineer and doing the normal artisanship or technicianship. And I was like, okay, maybe it's not such a bad thing seeing that I'm here. And my mom and dad said, anyway, you've done this. We're not paying for you to go to university. Let's see if you can go work. So I finished my N6 and started working. And then I started studying again to do my BSc because I wanted to be an engineer. But at the end of the day, I was actually glad at that time that I took it a different way because I'm very much hands-on in everything I do in life. So being an artisan, it helped me to be very much hands-on. But as you can imagine, I became the first woman to be an artisan in that company, which I'm not going to mention which one. And it was difficult because I had to learn Lidal, one. I had to stop crying because every hour I had to go to the ladies to cry because the language in the workshop is not friendly, right? Mm. And being the only girl at home, you can imagine I was just a princess. So learning the workshop talk and understanding is nothing personal. It took me six months to toughen up, to understand it's got nothing to do with me. But once that happened, then I fell in love with the whole career to say, okay, engineering. And for me, it was more about how come when you look at the top level, you only see old, gray, white beard. That's all that I saw. No ladies, nothing. For me, it was like, okay, I want to get there. So the first discussion I had actually with one of my MDs at that time was, how do I become you? And he said to me, stick around in two years time, ask me the same question if you're still here. And two years later, he was my sponsor. But at that time I said, I will be the managing director of my own company, not of a corporate. So I never dreamt of being a managing director for a corporate. I always said, I'll be a managing director of my own company. And how, how old were you at this time when, when you had the conversation with your... I was 20 and a half. So I started working when I was 20 years. So that discussion happened, I think, six months into my job. So I was 20 and a half, not even 21 yet. Wow. What was it that happened during your school days that made you ask the question, I want to be the MD? Because that's not a, 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 a commonplace question. Mm. What, what, what do you think that was? So for me, the one thing that was clear from school was wherever we went, you looked at the lecturers, they were all males, right? Old. I never saw any female lecturers. Whenever we went to do vacation work, the senior people at work, they were all old and males. And you can imagine doing engineering, it was also three girls in the class. For that two years doing N1 to N6, it was three or four girls. So there was hardly any girls. And both black and white, eh? but it was just four of us. So I always asked myself, H how How big was come? the class, just to get some perspective? So from, you know, from year one, it was about 50, 60. Okay. By the time you get to N6, it's like 20, because yeah. other people, Drop the usual, yeah, the usual yep. stuff. Yep. So, but then when you get there, you're like, how come we never make it to the top level? So that's a question I've always asked myself to say, how come we never make it there? 
And so I asked, how come it doesn't happen? You see HR, we had a female HR director. That was the only female person that I saw. We had about three different MDs with the CEO, but none of them were females. They were all males. And for me, it was more like, since that I'm the first female artisan, why not? So that's how I actually asked the gentleman to say, what do I have to do to be you? Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, in society, we, we, we've put ourselves into classes, boxes, and it's like there's an expectation of certain roles um, within certain genders. How, and, and when you think about an engineer, remember I would, back in the days, I probably when I was like six, seven, I would always wonder why are there no female bus drivers, right? And then it, now it's, it's not common, but you can see female bus drivers. There's the stereotype that females can drive, females can do this, they can be in engineering. What would you say to, to, the, to the people that think like that, that certain jobs, roles, places are special for certain genders? I think for me, if I look back from year two when I started working, when I officially qualified, I think what worked for me was the mentors that I had in my life. Like I said, old, very old. They were there to push me. And I think the one thing that they really worked hard on was to deal with my fear. The fear of not speaking up when you see that something is wrong, something doesn't work out. They were never there to fight for my battles. And when something didn't work out, they asked, why did you do it? Why did you not speak up? So they forced me to speak up. They forced me to fight for what was right for me. They made it clear no one is going to fight for you, but they pushed me. So whether you saw that it was a weakness for me on my side, that it's a weakness that I'm not dealing with an issue, they made sure that they just sat on that issue to force me to come out of that box, right? To deal with it. Dealing with the fear and being able to speak up helped a lot in terms of dealing with the challenges. Because when you don't have a fear, you understand that the challenge is there, you tackle it, it's not you being emotional, it's you doing what is right for you and also for the organization. The one thing that I've always learned is whatever it is that you see or whatever challenge you're going through, it might be personal, but if it's impacting the organization in a negative way, then deal with it differently. But if speaking up and fighting it will impact the organization positively, you come out tops. Maybe describe your leadership style to us. What do you, how would you describe yourself? I, I always say I'm a visionary leader. So I, if I arrive and I look at a place, of course, talking to people, understanding where the organization is, understanding the mandate that you are given as a leader, and also the values of the organization, because for me that is very important. If I'm not aligned to those values, yeah. I won't be able to deliver anything. Once I understand all that and I can see the bigger picture, then for me I always want to try and pull everybody else with me so that we can see the bigger picture. It's not about me leading and showing people, it's for everybody else to be able to see it with me, to walk together, which is very difficult because sometimes you might see the bigger picture within the first week, but two years later, your teams are still not seeing it. Yeah. But for you to build organization, because I always believe whatever you do, you need to build a legacy. You don't build a legacy by doing something. You build it by driving it and doing it with people. Not by showing them, but by helping them see the bigger picture with you and driving it with you. Because yeah. if tomorrow I'm not here, I still need to see that legacy growing. Yeah. yeah. More collaborative as opposed yes. to the, the conventional autocratic way oh, that no. it used to be. I think that's also so, so critical and um, how do you find the right team because 
some people respond to that type of leadership and some people don't. It's just how it is. How do you, a tough question I get, and I'm asking because I, I have the same challenges in trying to build a team that's around you to support you with your vision. Um, and it's not just a hierarchy thing. It's, a, it's across uh, the organization, top to bottom, left to right. Um, do you have a special thing that you do in interviews or when you're you know, talking to internal people, external people that, 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 that you look out for? You know, that so mostly in interviews, people will look for qualifications. They're good. It's OK. But for me, I always look for how do we connect? Because if you and I are going to work together, we need to connect. Yep. And if we can't connect, it's not going to work, right? So if we connect in an interview, it's good. But I always look at your values, your principles as a person. Because for me, I always try and align, like I said, align to the values of the organization. So I need to understand from you and your perspectives what drives you as a person. Yeah. Because if what drives you is very much aligned to what we are trying to achieve internally, then it will work. Yeah. So once we've got that common understanding, for me, I see that it works very well. But mostly with people that you find internally, when, where there's a will, there's always a way. Yeah. But sometimes you shouldn't be scared of changing. If it doesn't work, change. That's a key thing about uh, not being afraid to change. Fail fast. I yeah. believe in that. Yeah. <laughs> That's Yanish's favorite so, so statement. I'm, 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 uh, Goodall, you've heard it from somebody <laughs> else other than me, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been encouraging Goodwill to be comfortable with failing. Um, because I, uh, as you also allude to, is, is during your failures is when you learn the most. Uh, often what not to do is sometimes more important than what to do. You know, one of my pet hates is we've been doing this for 10 years and it has worked <laughs> well. The world has changed. Yep. The world is not what we know to be. I mean, in 2019, and what we did then and what we're doing today is totally different. So if we will go back and say, in 2019, we did this, let's go back to that, we will die, right? Yeah. So for me, I, I always try to encourage people that think that way to say, maybe you must stop thinking and just feel and go with the flow. Do, you know? No, just do, and if you make mistakes, it's fine. You learn, right? Fail fast, move on. Yeah. Because then if you fail, you know what you've done wrong. But if you are holding on to that method that you've, you've been using for 10 years, you're not growing, you're yeah. dying. When, when, when young people come into the organization, I mean, there's a big gap between the old and the young. Um, from what we see, what we experience, our experiences. Again, I am, I've dropped out, right? That's the non-conventional way. Um, and maybe if you backtrack 20 years ago, dropping out would be bad um, and uh, the the more we, we we fast forward it's getting less bad and less bad and less bad I can imagine uh, children who will be born in 2025 the way they'll think is going to be totally different so now how, when you lead those guys coming into the organizations how do you close the gap between what did work and what they can see will work and then find the sweet spot between the two I'm gonna be very honest with you the only thing that helps me is I've got a 23 year old and 20 year old they help me see things differently if I didn't have that I wouldn't survive at all because the thinking is totally different. I mean, you wake up in your home, they, they are at school and the other one is doing an intent, but she's doing everything from home. And I'm like, how are you actually doing anything from home? But she's delivering her project, everything is working out, which helps me that when I come back to the office and work with people your age, where I'm struggling, I go back home and try and have that conversation with my 23-year-old or my 20-year-old to try and close the gap. 
and see, maybe see from their perspective. Because if that was not the case, I'll struggle. Because yeah. yeah. as much as I might be 46, but I worked with people that were still in their late 60s, right? People that trained me, people that molded me to what I am today. Um, some way on pension, right? So my thinking, it's very old yeah. because of the people that molded me and drove me, right? Yeah. So the only thing that really brings me back to Mother Earth and be able to work with, what do you call the new generation? Gen, Gen X, Z. what? Gen, Gen Z? Z? It's my two kids. I, I, have a, I have a question for both you and your nation, the fail fast conversation, right? So fail, the way I understand it, failing, if you're gonna allow yourself to fail, it means you have to have a sense of security in yourself. Yes. Which I, I think you get as you get older. So now for us young, because we're still insecure about a lot of things, um, how do you then still fail fast with so many insecurities? Because the sense of security that it can happen, it will happen. We haven't, we've seen it from other people, but you haven't experienced starting something and finishing it or starting failing and finishing it. So that, how do you, how do you then come out of that still with your insecurities and still fail and still fail fast? I think for me, that's that's where I said in the beginning, I love engaging and talking to people and getting to form those relationships. Because when you have that relationship with your manager, when you fail, they know you're not failing because you didn't do something right. It's because you are trying to improve the organization or the process or something. For me, it all depends on that relationship, how strong it is, because that's where you get your security from. Because if you're going to do something wrong and you fail, you're going back to your manager to say, I failed. You need them to be able to say, okay, you failed. What did you do wrong? What can we do differently? And support you. But if they won't support you, you're not going to try again. Yeah. You won't fail fast again. That will be, will be for the last time that you try and fail. So for me, I always think it's, it's all to do with the support structure that you have at work, knowing that I am doing this for the bigger cause, for the organization. And if it works, we are all going to be happy and celebrate. But if it doesn't work, they'll still support me. Yeah. So I think, Goodall, there's two parts to it. I think it's a really good question. And I'm honestly still trying to formulate my thoughts around it, and it kind of evolves as, as it goes on. So I think one part of it is definitely your upbringing and how your parents or your, your mentors around you reacted when you failed. Was it, ah, Goodwill, you're useless, or Goodwill, let's help you up and encourage you to, to be better. So I think that's definitely one part of it that builds that self-confidence about being okay to fail. But I think as you implied, it's also the organization culture that is created around you that is, 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 is important because I'm busy reading a book, if you guys are interested, called Black Box Thinking. And they compare the, the medical industry and the aerospace industry. And they contrast the two with regards to failure. So when you have uh, uh, problems in, in the aircraft industry, pilots are allowed to report problems, whether it be technical, human error, without being uh, prosecuted. Uh, so if they're coming into land and they make a mistake, they can share that information very quickly. It's dispersed around the whole world. Be careful of this airport, there's a problem, or this aircraft has got this issue. And that's why the safety record in the aerospace industry is, mm -hmm. is second to none. I mean, it's safer than driving, despite the issues that we've obviously seen, because they encourage this feedback loop and they encourage people to report the mistakes that they make. Whereas the medical industry is very different. Oh. It's, it's, it's all suppressed. So if a doctor makes a mistake, they try and cover it up because of the consequence that you know, the doctor might get sued or whatever it is. And so you see the, the progress, despite significant progress in the medical industry, is probably not as fast and you still see basic errors 
being made in the medical industry because the the in general the industry is not encouraging reporting mistakes because they want to cover it up and and I think the the culture of your organization has to be more one around the aerospace industry where mistakes are not accepted however they're used as a learning tool um, you know you can't just say okay make a mistake let's see what happens no at the end of the day there's profit to be made right but at the same time encouraging learning from the mistakes so you continuously get better it's that um, ev evolution thinking as opposed to revolution thinking um, and I think it comes down to the, the culture and it's uh, it's not easy as a leader of an organization to accept mistakes because you're being your ultimate KPI is going to be judged against that but to say goodwill it's okay for you to make a mistake in an organization even though it's impacting me because I know in the long term you'll be better and better and better it's not so easy as a leader to it accept isn't, that. but I think also the other thing that you can look at it is being a woman in a corporate world from day one people don't expect you to do anything right so everything that you do you have to fail fast you actually learn to fail fast on your own because all that you are doing is to try to prove to the whole world that I'm as good as my colleague next door. So you've been doing that from when you are an artisan. So it becomes a second nature to you. You don't actually even see it anymore, but that's who you are because yeah. you have to prove yourself in everything that you do. You make a mistake, you take the fall. Everything else goes well, other people get, yeah. get the credit for it, right? Yeah. That's how it is. So it becomes second nature that you must just fail fast and learn to work differently. So, so Rockwell Automation is, is a global company. How do you and that different business cultures how do you how do you navigate yourself towards that towards the differences within the the cultures um and i'm asking this because we were speaking about culture uh, the failing culture right facilitating for the failing culture how do you how do you work around that difficult answer but anyone that knows me will tell you that i say it as, as it is honestly so i joined rockwell first june 2020 right in the middle of lockdown meeting just hr and my office manager like i call her so I didn't know anybody. So there was no culture to be seen, right? So whatever it is that I had to learn and see, it was what I was told, what I had. I think three, four months later, I met few people, like part of my team. Six months later, I met the whole team. Um, a year later, I met the whole organization. So it took me 12 months to understand the culture of Rockwell, South Africa. So you can imagine I was very lost, not knowing which direction I'm going. Fell in love with it, had my own doubts because what I saw was as much as it's very much a Rockwell culture, but it was very much still a mining culture. I came from other organizations outside where you've got mining, you've got utilities, it's everything in one. So in here it was all about we are mining, we do this, and we've been doing things for 10 years. And that was very frustrating. That became culture. We've been doing things this way and you have to follow this. I went to join my counterparts outside South Africa, Rockwell in EMEA, two months ago for the first time, which showed me this different side of Rockwell, different culture, how people are doing things. The thinking is totally different. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying the thinking in South Africa was wrong, but for me it was very old, um, very old way of doing things. People are very comfortable, struggling with change, for me, change is constant. I love change. For me, that's when I, I thrive during change. But what I, what I saw in here was the culture is don't change anything. Don't change anything that works, right? But going to EMEA, joining the other teams to see them, I saw that they were different, very 
young in their thinking, right? Um, change is constant. They're comfortable with everything that they're seeing. It's not about we've been doing things this way. Let's stick it up that way, right? And then I went to the US last month and I was blown away, totally different. So if I look at the Rockwell culture, if someone says to me it's an American culture, the culture is American, no, it's not. We very much localize it. And I think for me, I've learned to take the best of what I see locally and what I saw in the US. And what I'm trying to do is to combine the two so that we can find each other somewhere with the teams and the colleagues. Yeah. That's um, obviously Rockwell is a massive global organization with many locations. Um, do you find that there's uh, um, a different way of dealing with your colleagues from different countries, from a cultural perspective? Like, I mean, we have customers in the US, Mexico, China, obviously Europe, uh, and the cultures are very different. And we find, as a supplier, we have to adapt to the different cultures, employ the right people that can speak the right language, uh, for example, as a simple uh, solution to, to solving some of these differences. Even interpreting an email, speaking to a German friend of mine yesterday, and when, a, when German uh, internal staff or customers write emails to us, it's very straightforward and to the point and can come across as a South African as being a bit abrupt. But it's not. It's just a difference in culture. How do you navigate that? Firstly, I dislike emails. And, I, and I'm using dislike for a lack of better word because I don't want to use the H word. I always say to people, pick up the phone and phone your yeah. colleague, wherever they are, in the US or wherever, talk. Because what I've realized is in South Africa, we seem more like the Americans. We say what we think, the way we say it. And people in Europe, they're nicer, they sugarcoat. It's not move this bottle. It's like, what if we move this bottle a little bit? Don't you think it would be much better? But for us, it's more like move this bottle, let's get on with it, right? Yeah. More like the Americans. So I, I sometimes struggle a little bit with that because you need to understand the different cultures, yeah. especially with the European counterparts, to say you might come across as rude. Yeah. Uh, especially if you are on Teams. Um, but on email, you can put it nicely. But what I see is putting something on email, you're putting it nicely, you lose the message. Yeah. So pick up the phone and speak to someone yeah. and explain it. But yeah, culturally, we're, we're very different. Yeah. We're seen as more like Americans. I want you to circle back. You were talking about your personal life. Two, two questions, um, maybe related, maybe not. How do you how do you navigate being a mom in this environment? Because I look at myself, we're similar age, and I can't imagine. And I see my wife with, with we have a daughter. Um, the things that she had to go through as a mom, I can't imagine having to do that. It, it it would have been almost impossible for me. If if I look at how difficult it was, the late nights, the challenges, the the emotional drain, um, how, how do you manage that? For me, it's, 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 it's still a miracle how uh, women are able to do that because I, I, I witness it and I can't see myself being able to do it. How did you navigate that? You have two, uh, two daughters. A daughter and a son. Uh, oh, a daughter and a <laughs> son, so, so you're a female in a male corporate. You also have a male at home called a husband. So look at it 
di three different ways. You as a person, being a wife, being a, a workaholic. So for me, it came from, I think, from when I was young, I decided this is what I want to do. This is where I'm going to get to. I mean, this might come up as a, as a joke, but those people that knew me when I was 20, they'll tell you, I said, when I'm 45, I'll have my own company, right? And be an MD of my company and this and this. So everything else was very much structured. I got married when I was 21. I had kids, my first child when I was 23, my second one when I was 26. Hubby didn't agree. And I was like, I'm having kids now because after this, I'm done having kids, right? So it wasn't more about the discussion or negotiation, it was more like, uh-uh, I'm done, I'm doing <laughs> this, right? So more like being a little bit of a bully, if I can put it that way, because for me, it was either I do that, get it over and done with, or I won't have kids at all. And I finished, finished my BSc, finished my, 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 my MBA when I was, I did my MBA when I was 40, by the way. 20 years down the line, I think it explains why I got divorced <laughs> because you can't manage all those three things. One has to give. And in this case, it was my marriage that had to give. So being a mother worked, work life worked, but personal life, it had, it had to give. And for me, it's all about you're trying to juggle all the balls. You cannot juggle all the balls at the same time. Something had to give. And in, that, in this case, it was marriage. Um, right or wrong, I don't know, but that's what happened. So. There's no balance. I struggle then. I still struggle now to find a balance. I go with the flow. Yeah. And that's what I do. I appreciate that honesty because it's, it's the reality of it, right? And there's theories. Yeah. And you could read management books as much as you want, but the reality is very different on the ground. And I, and I feel that. Yeah, it's like being a parent. You can read so many books about being a parent, yeah. but at the end of the day, those books teach you, teaches you nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. There is no book that teaches you how to be a great mom or great dad. Yeah. So life, it's exactly that way. Yeah. Sure. And there's a, there's a sacri sacrifice to, to, to almost everything. There's a price to pay. All yeah. that you do is to look at which one is better, yeah. which yeah, one works for you, yeah. right? That must have been a tough, uh, because you're obviously conscious and aware of it, right? So it, it's, it's different when things just happen yeah. and you were not aware of it, but you seem to be aware of it and was, uh, was conscious. That's, that's it's, it's a call that you make. So yeah. it's a call that I made. Um, not an easy one. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you need to own your life yeah. and drive it according to what makes sense for you. Yeah. You know, they say sometimes you have to be very selfish about what you do. It's called self-love. Yeah. Well, I don't think you can help or love anyone else unless you love yourself first, right? Yeah. So, yeah. again, easier said than done. Yes. Honestly, it's. Uh, I, I, I'm, I personally still trying to figure it out. You have to. I guess it's a journey, not a destination. It is. The um, the question that is is in my head. Um, I seem to, uh, having spent a lot of time with the nation, traveling and seeing a lot of people, I seem to see that everyone, doesn't matter your shade, of the, your color, of your skin, race, um, sex, everyone has some difficult challenges that they need to overcome in order to achieve it, whatever it is for them, right? And so, but there are people who stop at the, this is the reason, and we, we call them excuses, but most of the time those reasons are actually valid. I don't have this, I don't have that, I'm not educated, I had the wrong set of parents, what 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 how do you, how did you personally take all of the, the, the barriers to entry and you, you, you overcame them? And how did you get yourself to be the person who jump and overcome those challenges? Um, Maybe you have to meet my mom and dad, then you'll understand. 
There's no time for that. There's no time for excuses. You cry today, you feel sorry for yourself today. Tomorrow you have to pick your pieces and pick yourself up and move on. Sure. So that's how I was raised. Even today, my, my, my dad will still say to me, I mean, he's 77. He's still asking me, when are you doing your PhD? Like, really? <laughs> that's my dad for you. And he's still, I mean, yesterday he was still saying to me, you've been there, it's almost three years, where to from here? I'm like, mm, maybe another two more years before I can think about anything else. He was like, okay, as long as you don't stop thinking. So constantly, that's what I've, I've been asked by my mom and dad, right? Mm. That's one, um, that's the support structure that I have at home. But I think I was also lucky enough to have, have a couple of mentors and coaches and what we call sponsors in corporate world. Those people that are opening certain doors for you without knowing and pushing you um, a lot. So I've had a couple of those. So whenever I had few challenges that I didn't know how to, what to do or how to deal with them, I've always had someone who was willing to listen and guide me. And I, I think for me, maybe it's luck because not everybody's got that. And I've managed to have a couple of those. I think it goes back also to when I started in my career being the first woman being an artisan in that company. A lot of grape yet, they were like, seeing that you're doing so well and we love the fact that you're so dedicated, committed to your work, what can we do to help? So they've always been there, sharing their networks and also sharing their experiences. So in every organization that I moved, I always looked for people like that. So it became more like a learning cap for me to say, okay, if you do this, it works out. And building my own support structure, finding people that have been in the organization for longer in different levels that will guide me and help me and deal with whatever challenges I was facing. Not necessarily to say senior level as an MD position or C-level, because sometimes you might have someone who is your colleague, same level, but they've gone through the same challenges over and over again, but they are there to help you and just hold your hand and walk the journey with you. Yeah, The top is lonely. Uh, it's, uh, and everyone looks up to the leader to answer the questions that are sometimes unanswerable. And you it's don't always have answers. No. I think it's uh, w one of the things I'm learning is also to be vulnerable in that space, to say, I actually don't know. I, I really don't know. Let's, let's figure it out. Obviously, there's the, the, the hype and there's lots of buzzwords, Industry 4.0, Fourth Industrial Revolution, IoT, wah, 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 all of these hype. I prefer to call it the digital world. The digital world, right. Yes. What's your take on it? I love it. And, and wh what does it mean for you as Kalina? What does, it, what does it mean for Rockwell, if you can give us a take? What does it mean for me as Kanina? Um, I'm at work until half past seven sometimes without worrying about what is happening at home because I can be at work and still keep an eye of my own house, like the security structure and everything else through the digital means, right? Yeah. So I see everything that is happening in my own house while I'm sitting here, which is an hour away. It makes my life easy. I can follow through in terms of what is happening with my kids, wherever they are. And it's all because of digital, Digital, right? I met an 80-year-old grandmother about two weeks ago who was very happy that she knows how to move money from one account to another with a phone. That's a digital world. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is an 80-year-old who can do that. And for me, it was like, and we're saying we have not arrived as Africa? If an 80-year-old can do that, it's amazing. 
we talk about Rockwell. We talk about connected enterprise as Rockwell, right? To say, we have mining. We can talk to you and say, I think for me that worked much better during COVID when everybody was worried to say, how do we actually make sure that we maintain our product? Through your connected enterprise, you do it very well. You don't have to be inside the shaft to be able to take care of your own enterprise. You can talk through it from far away. You can have go through a maintenance or even a breakdown with someone who's in Canada while you are in Rustenburg in Impala through connected enterprise because of the digital world. And that works very well for us. So this is what we are busy driving internally uh, at Rockwell to say, let's think software, let's th think digital, let's think connecting our products. One of the issues that we had with one of our um, water customers was the pump issues that they have during December. When they break, they can't do anything because they have to send people physically there. But as we all know, we all have different skills. You send someone there to take care of a VSD, when you get there, sort of VSD as a PLC that failed. But through digital means and connected enterprise, you can get another person to talk that yep. technician or engineer who only knows a VSD how to work a PLC. And you can do it from miles away. Yep. That's from Canada. Yes. And, yeah. and it works so well. And at the end of the day, no issues. You can deliver your water to your community without issues yep. through connected enterprise. Yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer. I know there's, there's, a, there's a school of thought that, you know, the digital world's going to take jobs away in Africa. I, I, I think very differently. I think it is our opportunity to skip the landline, so to speak, and go straight to the smartphone. Um, and I think we have to view it differently. And I also am a firm believer in, in, in solving our own problems from an African perspective. Because if you look at it from a global perspective, first world specifically, they have a view and they're solving their challenges using digital solutions. Yes. They don't have our view. So we can't expect them to, we can't expect to copy and paste their solutions on for us. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a really critical uh, thing to accept as African technology companies that we have to find our solutions for our problems. We can't expect somebody else to solve it. Like you're talking about connecting a, a Canadian expert to a water pump, for example. That may not be an issue in Canada, but it's an issue for us, and so we need to find ways to, to solve it. And we did during exactly. COVID. Exactly. It happened. It, it forced us into yeah, it, yeah. right? Yeah, this was a practical example. And I think that, I, I think if, if I look forward 10 years, the challenges we see in Africa today, we have to solve them. And if we do solve them, they will be solutions for the rest of the world. Because we've got our unique set of problems. I mean, it's, we, we, we spoke about being in the problem is, is as important as solving it because you have to be in it to solve it. If you're not in the problem, then how do you solve it? I think the mindset also, because being in the problem, but also still saying, I've done this this way for the past 10 years, it's not going to help you. Yeah, uh, but exactly. having that open mind and a different yeah. mindset to be willing to learn yeah. the new methods, it helps. Yeah. And digital, it forces people to think differently. Yeah. Mm. I think that uh, we have a unique opportunity in Africa. I just ho I wish more people would see it as an opportunity and not a risk. Oh yeah. And we, uh, I, I, I personally try push it as hard as what I can. Part of the reason why we have a podcast is to is to say that as Africans, I think we need to put some leadership and our leadership foot forward in this digital space. It's it's important. Um, if you could wish one thing for Rockwell Automation South Africa that you want to achieve in your time, what would it be? Just one? 
Oh, however many you, you, you want to say, if they are. If I can leave Rockwell, Africa, not South Africa, as a $1 billion company, I'll be happy. And believe me, we're still very far, but not too far. If we work hard, we'll be able to do that. If I can see the older generation and the new generation finding a way to work better without having those issues, culturally having a proper Rockwell, Rockwell Africa culture that says this is who we are, not 10 years ago or two years ago, identify ourselves with our solution and what we have to deliver to our customers. So for me, we are very much driven by the mining community. I would like for us as Rockwell people to identify with the change that needs to happen within those communities, not inside the shafts, but with those communities around where we work with the mines. And if I walk in next to Impala and there's a child that knows who Rockwell is, I will have achieved my job because today, when you get to any mine, they still talk about Alan Bradley, and you say Rockwell, they say, who's that? <laughs> so if I can go to any community, they know who Rockwell is, based not only on the product, but on the differentiating methods that we bring to them and for them, and the solutions that we are creating together with the communities, I will have achieved my goal. The thing that I'm thinking about is you mentioned what you would have wanted uh, Rockwell Africa to do. So now you said you have a daughter and, and a son. Uh, I'm picturing, let's say they are now 30 and they're going to watch this video 30 uh, when they turn 30. And what's interesting is that because you are mothering them, so you're going to mother them until they turn 30. But what no, is the until thing? they turn 50. Yes. <laughs> but now it, the, at this point, it's 30, right? Like it, your dad is still fathering you, right? Yes. yes. So what, what is the thing, the one thing that you actually want them to learn that you think is very fundamental? And the, the, the beautiful part about this is that it's actually going to happen, right? But now we fast forward, it's like a time machine. Now they are 30 and they are watching this moment. What is that thing that you, you w would want wanted them to have learned from you? That's part one of the question. And part two, if Kanina was also watching that, what is, the, what is the thing that you would say to her, we did it or we didn't do it or I wish we did it differently? Finding an easier way of dealing with fear at the early stage. Because if you could actually deal with that earlier in your teens, then you will thrive. Because we miss a lot of opportunities because of fear. I might have learned how to deal with it in my 20s, but I believe if I learned how to do that earlier on, I would have been better off. I don't regret my life, but I believe I would have done better. Because for me, fear is what holds a lot of people back. And is this what you tell your younger self as well? Yes. Fail fast. Yep. Don't be afraid. Go for it. What's going to happen to you? Either you are going to end up in hospital, they'll fire you, or you'll die, right? But you've got to do something. Because yeah. if you look at everything else, they're still going to happen to you anyway, sometimes in your life, right? Yeah. I, I was listening to a podcast yesterday. I can't remember exactly what it was, of a YouTube video, and the guy says... You basically run as fast as you can off the cliff. <coughs> yes. And then you make the parachute on the way down. <laughs> you figure out how you're going to land on the way down. But, but that's the fearless nature that you need, right? You do run and jump. But if you think about it, you wake up every day, you do the normal things that you do. You get into your car, you go to work. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. That it might it be a cliff, right? Anyway, yeah, Anything yeah. can happen. 
One thing that has definitely dawned on me, uh, as Genomark has grown, we've become uh, much bigger. We, ha we actually have 700 people working for us. And myself and, and uh, three, uh, Siegfried, Quinton and Graham, we, we are responsible for that. Yeah. And it definitely plays a huge role in the decisions we make. Because if it's wrong, the, 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 the consequences are, are massive. And we have 700, I think most of them are breadwinners. Yes. Um, so it makes the decision to jump off the cliff much more difficult. It requires much more uh, bravery. Um. I don't agree with that. If you are aligned with the values and the principles and where the company is, you're thinking, even you, everything that you're doing is very much aligned to that. Okay. So the risks that you're taking, they're very much aligned to those values. Yeah, but so I'll you're I'll not going to destroy you. You're right, I think. Yeah. But a, a, an example that, that I, I worry about, that I think 20 years ago I probably wouldn't worry about, yes. is we're an automation business. We make production lines that assemble automotive components. Successful, last 10 years. It's working, yes. right? pat on the back and all that stuff. Now we're saying the world is changing. It's digital. We don't know what the destination looks like. I mean, if we've ever thought we lived in an uncertain world, in the past it is nothing compared to the uncertainty we have today. And we've taken the decision as the four of us. We have our business. It's going to carry on the way it is. We're going to make it better. However, if we want to be prepared for the future, we need to go in this direction. Now we put all of our effort resources, time, effort, into this direction, not knowing that it's right, is the, is the fear. And, and 20 years ago, I probably wouldn't care. Today, I care a lot more about it and I'm much more wary of it because of the 700 breadwinners that are our responsibility and yes. I feel responsible for them. Um, so it is a, the cliff just got higher. But you still fail fast. Yep, I, and, I, and I'm completely fine with the continuous failure, that gives me the, the, the hope that we'll be right because I'm okay to fail in short bursts because that allows us to keep changing directions, right? And moving with where the, the, the potential target might be uh, without blindly going forward. And you fail fast with caution. <laughs> yeah, or fail faster yeah. is probably more accurate. Yes. Rather than failing in a year, I want to fail in a month. Oh, no, failing in a year is not failing fast. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in the past, we were okay, let's fail in a year, we've got time to change direction. Whereas now you have to continuously adapt yeah. your direction, strategy, managing people changed significantly in the last two years. Like, completely different. If you told me two years ago we'll have a work from home policy, I'll say no chance. And immediately you have to, should we do it, should we not do it? You can't think about it, you can't analyze it, you can't call a consultant to come and help no. you figure it out, you just make a decision and adapted. So we've adapted it twice since making the decision a year and a half ago. But it's not easy. I can tell you it's, uh, it's lonely sometimes. But uh, yeah. My final last question. Ganina, um, thank you very much for, for coming to the podcast. What do you want the young girl to learn as a legacy? The one who is afraid, um, is fearful that the industry is harsh, and they look at you and they think, I, it will never be my life. Everything about life is harsh. But I always say, when you are alone in the middle of the night, I mean, you might have partners and everything, but in the middle of the night, there's that moment where it's just you and your thoughts. And you are happy with what you achieved in that day or on that day. For me, that's all that I want. When I go home and I switch off those lights, 
and I just after my prayers and just before I close my eyes and I think about what happened during the day that good feeling that I that I have in me that I've delivered something whatever that is that's all that I want that's all that I thrive for because that's what drives me to wake up the following day and do better so for me thrive to do better and doing better it's not about money or success for me it's making a difference in somebody else's life for somebody else it might be maybe getting that promotion I don't know we're working towards something all the time for me it's all about making a difference in somebody else's life if for me when I finally retire if I can see 10 Keniners that are still CEOs of automation companies I'll be happy with that so I'm not working to create 10 Keniners I'm working every day to create to make a difference in other people's lives whatever they want to become for them to achieve their dreams. That's what I do. And every day I thrive to, to make it better. So I have so many other people that I mentor and coach for them to realize their dreams. And their dreams is not becoming an MD. Some, it's becoming other things that I won't mention, but if I can help them to achieve their dream, that makes me happy. Are, are you gonna retire? <sighs> For me, retiring is about doing something far away from corporate. Okay. That's still not retiring and still working, yeah. but doing what pleases you, where you don't have to answer to nobody. Yeah, I, don't, I, I get the sense that you're not going to retire. No. Yeah. It will get to a stage whereby I want to be by myself. Yeah. That dream that I said when I get to 45, I want to be an MD of my own company. I still want to do it. I might be a year and a half later but I will do it before I get to 50 or by the time I get to 50. That's awesome. what I call retirement. Awesome. <laughs> You're going <laughs> to retire into an MD role. <laughs> That's cool. Yes. I like that. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Yeah. Great conversation. Proper. <laughs>